Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi, Rachna. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Great, great. You know, you know, this is the current reality of, of life where you know what where we're at the behest of internet connections and sort of the virtual uh, uh infrastructure unfortunately no that's fine if there's a, if there's a long delay then it's um it's it's my uh, cogs <laughs> working rather than the internet but uh, yeah hopefully we'll hang out yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you're interested in surgery, which is really cool, you know, because, um, you know, okay, I'm being a bit old fashioned here. You know, back when I started medicine, there weren't many ophthalmologist female surgeons. What was what was your experience of that? Oh, God. Well, I think... When I first started out, and that was a long time ago, I'm sure. I'm sure actually it was probably before you. Um, <laughs> although it, it, you know, it's very, very charming of you to say that you started much earlier than me. Um, no, I mean I went into medical school in 1989, and I did an integrated BSc and qualified in 1996. Um, and at that time, there were still more. Uh, males than females in medical school. Um, I went to medical school in Imperial College and it was um, very, very sort of um, male dominated actually. Um, and very few of us um, uh, females and males wanted to go into surgery, but the vast majority wanted to go into surgery. Um, I was uh, born into a medical family. So I was very, very sort of, um, conditioned to be um, either completely pro-medicine or completely against medicine um, and from my my personal sort of experience my father was a plastic surgeon and my mother was an anaesthetist and they both came to the UK um, and had to really didn't see career progression unfortunately because um, of various reasons even though my father was a, a gold medalist in India um, and my mother was 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 pretty pretty good pretty hot herself as well um, but she was told in her medical school uh, the same one as my father um, a very well-known one in India called um, CMC Velour that she should become an anaesthetist so that she could support my father the surgeon I mean she may well have been a surgeon who, who knows in in those days uh, whether um, whether there was there was more um, difficulty for females to become surgeons. But anyway, she was told to become an anaesthetist to support my father. Um, and they worked in a mission hospital together in India and then, then came over to the UK when I was four and my younger brother was two. 
Um, and I so I grew up um, in a medical family and I grew up seeing a surgeon and an anaesthetist work very hard in the UK. Um, and you know, my, my father uh, worked with Burns Plastics um, uh, in the plastic surgery department in at that time that was in Billericay in, in Essex and then um, later on moved to, to Chelmsford. Well, it, very well known Burns unit because that's where McIndoe and a lot of the, the you know, well-known surgical teachers um, who developed the, the techniques for plastic surgery um, started. And so I would hear about um, all of his, all of my father's work and some of the uh, sufferers from the Falklands War who, who are pretty well known and we won't mention any names, but you know, th there was a lot of excellent work being done. And, and um, I, I really became interested in that aspect of it. I also, you know, have this keen interest in, in the aesthetic side of things and, and I enjoyed art and painting and drawing. And these are all the things that I you know, like to do when I was growing up and the sciences as well. So um, I was in two minds as to where I would go, but of course, coming from a, a, an Asian background, you know, there's always this in, immense push, more to my brother really than to me, uh, that uh, I, we should be looking at a profession and a profession being something like medicine or law or engineering or you know, th all those sort of nothing to do with painting and drawing and, and art. But, um, you know, I know I knew that that's where my passions lie, but I also um, really enjoyed sciences as well. Um, my, my brother actually uh, was going to do medicine as well, um, having grown up in, in the same family, um, but he hated blood. And he now is, uh, um, you know, he ended up doing a pre-med degree um, in, in the US. So he left the UK um, for other reasons. Um, again, um, I think he sort of got to a point where he was a little bit disillusioned as well. And um, he went to Harvard and he's now a very uh, well-known um, uh, person in mergers and acquisitions in the US. So, you know, clearly medicine wasn't, wasn't what he was meant to do. And, uh, but medicine, I think was what I was meant to do. Um, and um, I mean, was that more of a duty, you know, because, because you mentioned push there, did you, I mean, or was it just sort of a natural transition from, you know, for, for, for you as a, uh, uh, as a young lady? Yeah, I think for him, it was more of a duty yeah. and all that, or he felt that he had to end, do that and end up doing that. For me, it was a natural transition. I was also the eldest, and so I, there was, I suppose there was a little bit of responsibility there to do something that was um, reasonably professional. Um, but also, uh, it's, it's the sort of, it's a caring profession. You know, medicine is a caring profession. And one thing that um, I do uh, well, I feel, is, is care. <laughs> and so, um, whether that's caring for siblings or caring for friends or you know now caring for, for the older generations and patients you know that caring had had to come into it and um, and being able to do um, a job um, or a career that gave my father quite immense satisfaction and my and my mother immense satisfaction in terms of looking after patients however hard they worked and however tired they were when they got home, 
um, I knew that they got a great deal of satisfaction from their work. And then that's, that's, um, that's something that sort of drove me as well. Um, and you know, it was just natural selection. Sure, yeah. you know, I, was to, I was going to end up in medicine um, regardless. And I was going to end up being a surgeon because um, you know, of the artistry, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, but but the ophthalmic side of it, <laughs> that was that was an interesting decision because um, um, in medical school at the time when I was there, there was um, a stint where you have, which you probably had as well, and you know where you go through your training um, attachments for the for the specialties, and so the, um, dermatology and ophthalmology was always sort of grouped together, and it was called derma holiday. So derma holiday <laughs> being this time where you know it, most people didn't didn't really turn up to the the clinical attachments and it was a holiday time um but I you know having seen my parents work very hard and uh, in their in their careers I, I didn't really want to be up all night in whatever I ended up doing and actually a derma ophthalmology holiday as it as it was called in in imperial um was was something that I was actually thinking about as a career so it was either going to be dermatology or ophthalmology. Um, and I, I actually decided um, to be a doctor when I was about eight. I was going to be a pediatrician at that time because I enjoyed looking after children or being with children and realized that actually that was the wrong thing when I got into medical school because you were then looking after the parents rather than the children. And so I So I mean, about... you know, what happened when you were eight? What, what, what exactly <laughs> happened? Well, um, I played with Meccano more than I played with dolls, um, but um, I had a younger brother um, and I enjoyed looking after him. And, um, and you know, I think that it's just default, maybe as a, as a, as a female that you, you want to look after children. Uh, and so pediatrician was what I thought I was going to end up doing. Um, I mean, there wasn't a child that you kind of, you know, something happened or, you know, a particular story that happened at the age of eight that, that was really significant. I think I think eight is about the time when um, people were asking me and it's yeah. interesting actually because I have an eight-year-old and um, a ten-year-old and now is the time when we're sort of having those discussions again about what they might want to end up doing and it suddenly transitioned from being an astronaut um, and Um, the youngest was, was wanting to be a doctor because he's seen two parents as, as doctors again, but um, actually he's changing his mind now and he's looking more at his uncle who's in the States <laughs> and heading off in that direction. But yeah, I think it is around the time when, when children sort of start to get asked the questions and start having to think about those questions. So that was when I was asked, that's when I sort of decided that, you know, it's going to be medicine and I, I just stayed on that track. But um, yeah. yeah, so ophthalmology, dermatology, whether, whether, two specialties that were grouped together in, in as an attachment and they were funnily enough the two specialties that I'd been thinking about because they both offered an opportunity to be on call um, and be able to speak and I thought that was quite an important thing you know with with, with um, dermatology um, I expected that there would be more emergencies at night time when you might have to get up and with ophthalmology of course um, very few people lose their sight when they're sleeping. So, you know, it, it's got to be a traumatic event or something else. And so that that's why I, I started thinking in, in those those terms. It's, it's an interesting way of 
with deciding the, the career specialty. But um, so uh, I also had this fascination with eyes and, and uh, for my final year as a, as a school student, I was um, the artist for the school co uh, magazine cover. Um, and I decided to draw an eye. Um, my own eye, and but it's something that I'd sort of studied in terms of the artistry rather than the science. Um, and I think it was just that at that time that I had this epiphany that actually, well, yeah, I'm going to. I, I went to all of the surgical attachments, and I um, assisted and got as involved as I could at the at the Western Eye Hospital, and um, really, really loved my attachment and time there. And I, you know, that's when I decided that you know this is it. I I want to do surgery. I love medicine. I love art. I love. I have this interest with eyes, is and, and this is what I'm going to end up doing. So yeah, that, that's that's why I specialised in ophthalmology. And then later, um, after completing my ophthalmology training and going through ocular plastics, I realised actually, you know, I love the plastic surgery side of it. Yeah, and that's so. So so go, go, going back round, sort of to the same origin. Yeah, 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 full circle. Yeah. yeah. And at least being able to use some of my other passions in my work as well. So it's um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's where I ended up. What with, with... do I mean? What difficulties did your father go through back? You know, back then, and and you know, what what really struck you? Um, you know, as a young as a young woman. So I think for for him, his his uh, there's there's. In, there's always racism we have to bring up yeah. the r word and and it's sad that we still have to bring up the r word but there is always uh racism the vast majority of the medical um junior staff at that time uh were asians uh from the or from the asian subcontinent or from countries where where asians were and and um they are, are still the vast majority I think of the backbone of the NHS and supports the, the, the NHS at the moment but there was a glass ceiling for for, for my for them and um, I think there is still a, a glass ceiling now although it may be for different reasons um, and so for him um, even though he had the immense skills and he was teaching other other others of his um, sort of junior um, doctor colleagues who were born and bred in this country, um, they were going to get the promotions. But I think it's also a little bit to do with culture and fitting in and who you know. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think I can entirely sort of blame racism on, on his lack of career progression. Um, but I think that had something to do with it. Um, and in terms of the sort of the male female aspect of it, um, so although I didn't have any issues that I that I was aware of in terms of racism during my training, um, my issues came in with with um, the the gender, I think. Um, so you're right. I mean, this, we started this conversation at the beginning talking about um, how it has been as a, as a female in, in surgery. And that's where the numbers started to dwindle. So once you get to ophthalmology, you still see a lot of females in ophthalmology, even though the ratio is still greater, male-female ratio is still greater. There are still a lot of females in ophthalmology. But when you get to the plastic surgery aspect of ophthalmology, 
the numbers shot right the way down. And in fact, I was one of probably one of the uh, a handful of uh, female consultants. In fact, possibly one of the first brown female consultants in ocular plastics in the country. Um, there are significant hoops to be jumped through and uh, there's a big bottleneck, but I made it and I made it um, through sheer hard work and determination. And also uh, there's something, I mean, you, a, lot, a lot of your listeners will be probably medical, but um, if not, then in terms of training, after you've finished your um, medical training, you do your specialist training in terms of whatever you want to do. So ophthalmology was then a, uh, six years, at least, if not longer. Um, and so, in, I got my consultant job in 2009, but that was after three years of doing something called um, a fellowship. So a fellowship is, is super specialized training after you've qualified from, from ophthalmology and you've made a decision to, to sub-specialize into a different part of the eye. So we're no longer general ophthalmologists like they, they were in those days. And ocular plastic surgery was an entity um, in, 2006 when I started my fellowship training after I finished my ophthalmology training. So I went to Australia for a year and I did a very well-known fellowship in Melbourne um, and worked with um, an excellent uh, oculoplastic surgeon called Alan McNabb, learned all about skin cancer work um, because there's a lot of sun exposure and, and, and sun damaged skin in Australia. Um, a lot of the functional skin cancer surgery, um, hands-on training I got from there, I brought back to the UK and was able to use it in my um, Suffolk population, which is also a retiring population um, with lots of skin cancers. And um, it's a very specialized area to deal with. And it's not the same as doing plastic surgery on the cheek or on the forehead where you, know, you don't have to worry about an underlying structure, which can can be damaged and which serves this important role of vision, which is probably one of the, the most important um, senses. Um, so that was my first fellowship for a year. And that was a great year to, to be out in Australia and, and sort of uh, get some experience, but also enjoy some sunshine and, and um, get, get more towards an end goal of becoming a consultant in ocular plastics. Um, I then, um, following that, got a fellowship in Moorfields Eye Hospital, which is um, the most well-known hospital in the UK for, um, or it was at the time, in the UK for, um, for ophthalmology. Um, and it's um, there that I got more experience in, in sort of orbital surgery, lacrimal surgery, so watery eyes, and also much more um, hands-on training and, and one of the things we sort of briefly chatted about before the podcast started is that you know at that time you were just thrown in at the deep end you just got on with things and so um, I was the senior fellow because I'd done a year of plastic training elsewhere and so I was then training all the junior fellows who had not had that one year of training and I was also not supervised by consultants and I was looking after patients with quite significant disease in an operating list that I was running by myself, which is at, at that time, you know, you, it, it's a consultant level list. So you were left to get on with things. And that, that's where 
we learnt, um, uh, and that's where we picked up our skills. That's where I picked up my skills in, in terms of efficiency and, and honing my surgical skills. But I also knew I wanted to do aesthetics as well. You know, the, the aesthetic aspect of, 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 um, of surgery. And so I then went on to work with um, uh, uh, another really, really brilliant, well-known surgeon called Naresh Joshi, who um, is well-known for blepharoplasty surgery and cosmetic eyelid surgery in this country. And worked with him to, to just assist in the private sector and, and learn about cosmetic eyelid surgery. Not that I would necessarily be applying that, that until much later on, it turns out, but um, um, it took me three fellowships to get a consultant job. And that consultant job, I had to wait for someone to retire. So in ophthalmology and in, in most consultant um, posts, we have to wait for somebody to retire or die before he can get the job. And so um, I was probably going to end up in London, but I didn't because there were no jo jobs available at the time. And I was not going to wait another, I'd already waited three years doing fellowships, but you know, I, I was relatively old in inverted commas when I, when I got my consultant job. So um, normally- Very experienced. Experience, yes, very experienced. So I, I got there um, three years after most people and um, um, I got a job at, in, uh, in Suffolk in Ipswich and um, uh, that was combined with Cambridge University Hospital in Addenbrookes. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that's great. You know, I've got, I've got there, <laughs> this is amazing. I've, I've managed to, to jump over all the hurdles and deal with all the struggles that um, my parents had to deal with. And um, I've got there and it's, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's amazing. But, um, but, and there is a but, um, we're not really sort of, um, as medical students, we're, 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 we're always just geared up to that end point, mm. that end point being getting the consultant job. Then what happens after that? It's not something that, um that we are sort of uh that we discuss or or we, we're asked to think about and you know then you're then left to just get on with it and and you then have to think about well you know this is it it's taken me 10 years to get here or more um what am i going to do now <laughs> um how am i going to what's what's my next goal and i'm very goal driven in that way in that you know i need to have some form of for of stimulation and something something to do to to Im improve on on what i what i do and so um you know i i, I um developed the services um and um in in Cambridge i set up um um now an internationally recognized um thyroid eye disease service and so thyroid eye disease is a very, very sort of subspecialty part of oculoplastics. And it's, it's not an uncommon disease, but um, so we see this endocrine problem called Graves' disease, where there's an overactive thyroid, which is not uncommon. And about 5% of people with Graves' disease develop thyroid eye disease, where people can develop large sort of massive bulgy eyes, um, and that can result in loss of vision and it's still a blinding condition. So you'd think that, you know, in ophthalmology, we are able to cure most things, um, maybe not macular degeneration completely yet, but most things we're able to cure. But um, thyroid eye disease is, is a blinding condition that we still do not have a cure for. 
um, and it was something that I decided actually, you know, that there is an unmet need here. There is an unmet need here because we don't have a cure. And we also um, have a group of people, um, the vast majority of patients who have the thyroid eye disease um, are females, it's an autoimmune condition. And it, it tends to affect people who are um, at the peak of their career. So um, a large group of females with autoimmune disease, which exists more frequently in females who are not just going blind, but also developing some disfiguring condition that affects their eyes. And interestingly, the vast majority of my patients were more concerned about the cosmetic aspect of it than the, the vision loss. Oh yes, the vision loss was, was bothering them, but that was something that we could, we could manage as doctors, we could manage. Um, but the cosmetic aspect was not something that we were allowed to manage as doctors um and that's weird isn't it you know that's that sort of really i mean it, it doesn't make sense no it doesn't make sense at all um and it and medicine in the nhs is uh, very disjointed in that way it's improving yeah. there are multidisciplinary teams now which and it's all about multidisciplinary teams some 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 specialties um in in terms of improving patient care but it's still very disjointed so yeah. multidisciplinary teams is when you get, you know, you, for thyroid eye disease, for instance, we would have a radiologist, an endocrinologist, uh, ENT surgeon, um, o um, ophthalmologist uh, like myself, and then you would have a surgeon for the strabismus, the eye movement problem, and the surgeon for the orbital disease when the eye is bulging forward too much, and the surgeon for the lid disease, uh, myself and an orthoptist who monitors the um, eye movements, um, but there would not be a psychologist yeah. or there would not be, you know, there, there are bits- A counselor that, or, yeah, or a therapist, um, yeah. No, we, we'd got so far with improving the management for this condition. It took me 10 years to get that MDT set up in Addenbrooke's, but we got it set up and that's, that's um, and I did a lot of research and published a lot on, on all aspects of, of thyroid disease. Um, but the thing from the very beginning that I knew that we need to have um, was some form of support, not just myself, but some other form of support for the patients. And that was not something that we could have in the NHS. It was just, there was just no funding for that kind of thing. I mean, it's not, you know, I, it's not as if it costs much, you know, with all due respect to sort of all psychologists yeah. and, and sort of counsellor. I mean, I've got a similar issue with 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 dry eyes. And and, and I think yeah. for me, you know, if you can have an onboard counsellor or an onboard therapist or psychotherapist or someone, in you know, interested in the psychology of, of um, even dry eyes, I think it would make a massive difference. And you'd save so much money. Yeah. Uh, OK, drug companies may not be so happy, maybe um because they might be using you know as much drops but at least sure actually that drug company i think the drug companies should be the ones that should be totally involved in this and exactly. i mean dry eyes, dry eyes is something that i'm very interested in myself as well and you know we'll, we'll talk about that as well because the, it, it's an aspect of um it's one of the things that affects thyroid eye disease patients anyway yeah, yeah. Uh, it's modern um, living now isn't it it's modern it living. is it is yeah it, 80% of the population will have some form of dry eye disease at some 
part of doing some part of their life and there are lots of things that we do to our eyes that can, that can contribute to that and there are lots of things that can be done that can help that but um, yeah a psychologist or the holistic approach is not something that we're, we're able to, to provide and I was sort of banging my head against a brick wall and I wasn't able to provide the aesthetic support either and I got at that time about six seven years ago I, I um, you know I got more involved in the aesthetic side of things out of the NHS and and um, I'd already always sort of avoided going into medical aesthetics and I, and I call it medical aesthetics because it's it's the things that are, that are still very taboo um, in this country things like using toxin and fillers and these non-surgical treatments that um, are associated with quite a lot of complications and problems because in this country anybody can do it so you don't have to be a doctor to do it um, but I knew that um, at some point when I was in, in Cambridge with my thyroid patients, I, I knew that actually that was the bit that was missing from the aesthetic side for my patients. So I had to wait for their disease to be inactive before I could operate. But during that time, these men and women were not able to go out of the, their house because they had the disfiguring eyes, that uh, disfigured eyes, which uh, meant that they were not able to relate to people, speak to people, look into people's eyes. And this is the area that, the eye area is the area that is the, the point that we communicate with everyone. Mm -hmm. There are the gaze tracking studies that were done by Alfred Yarvis, who's a Russian scientist in the 60s. Um, and he basically attached some electrodes up to some, some of his, um, his, his patients and um, monitored where the eyes focused when, when we talk to people. And, and so with these studies, it showed that actually, you start by looking at their eyes, you focus on the mid, mid, mid point area, the nose, mouth, if there are any scars, whatever else, you'll look at the scars and then you'll rest back on the eyes. So the eyes are in, critically important for communication. And my patients, disfigured eyes meant that they were not able to feel comfortable going out of the house, keeping their jobs, they were, were not able to you know, maintain their relationships. And, and so it had a huge impact on them. And that's when I realized actually, you know, vision loss isn't the most important thing for them. It's, it's the fact that they're, they're not a, they don't feel able to go out of the house. And that's where psychological support and aesthetic support could have come in. And I was not able to bring that into the NHS to, to give that to them. And so I learned about it and I started doing, um, a lot of research and work and hands-on training in terms of using fillers and, and hyaluronic acid, which would have been able to um, drop patients' eyelids so that they had more comfortable eyes without waiting until um, their bulgy eyes had settled down on the, on the drugs that I was using with the immunosuppression or without waiting till three years down the line when they could have their decompression surgery or without having to go down the route of having this sort of tarsorophy, which is stitching the eyelids together, which actually can be quite quite a lot more nasty for the eye surface. Yeah. And so- Yeah, I mean, by that time, yeah. they would have lost their job, you know, lost the relationship, fi you know, f financially would have been devastating for them. Yeah, um, I mean, and it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, as a doctor, I, I, you know, we see patients every, Three weeks, six weeks, one you know, one week, one month, or three months, or four months. But there are points of time, minutes and seconds and and days where these patients are suffering. Yeah. 
and it's very easy for doctors to say oh you look better or you you know you can see better you know you're, you, these tests look much better but you know these patients have been suffering that time and um and i wasn't able to offer them anything for that, that i mean hopefully you know this is where technology can come in and sort of provide you know um a safer space for them uh, you know some kind of you know sanctuary virtual sanctuary just to sort of get the ball rolling and to realize that there is other options for them and that there is support out there so you know technology going forward may be able to help with that um and that's something to kind of you know as a as a second degree form of of um therapy delivery i mean you know having top-notch delivery is the best and top-notch um therapy is the best but you know may, may, maybe this this can be a stepping stone into other people realizing that the psychological aspect of healthcare is just as important as the physical aspect sorry that's my you know two second yeah, you're, you're absolutely right no, you're absolutely right and, and as a result i mean i i I presented at various of my oculoplastic meetings uh, nationally and internationally, and there are now um, guidelines set up that have incorporated, if you can, get a psychologist or get a uh, nurse uh, support. Uh, that, and in more fields, they now have that. You know, they had that for a few years. Um, and Addenbrooke's, uh, I was on the verge of getting that set up as well. And so, yes, pe people do listen if you shout about it long enough and, and, and patient support groups, you know, come in there as well. And I got involved with the British Thyroid Foundation, which is a charity that supports um, patients with thyroid disease, uh, as well as other thyroid conditions and uh, ran some patient support webinars and educating um, eye care professionals as well as patient groups as well. And, and that, that sort of uh, drive um, helped to get these guidelines set up so that now the gold standard is to have have some psychological support but the aesthetic side hasn't come into that yet and so um, that's that's where I sort of then headed towards in terms of um, the next challenge of, of how I could improve services further. Um, What's the name uh, of the foundation? Yeah. I didn't catch that. British Thyroid Foundation. Right. The BTDA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, it's uh, the UK's biggest charitable trust for, for um, thyroid conditions and it supports patients um, and uh, it's uh, I'm one of their patient advocates in terms of uh, support for thyroid eye disease. So, wonderful, you know, we, we were taking baby steps and we got somewhere, but um, it's it's still not there yet. And there are lots of other conditions that re require that sort of that push and that support, like the dry eyes, as you say. And so, yeah, there, there's definitely. Well, there's a lot of work for us to do. You know, there's no short, <laughs> you know, no, we're, we're not going to be short of work anytime soon in the next, you know, probably hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, I mean, you know, going back, I mean, going back to sort of the experiences that your father experienced back then now, and, and given that you've experienced what you've gone through, mm -hmm. um, what would be your advice to him then? Because because obviously, you know, you're a young lady then and you didn't have the life experiences that you have now. What would you have kind of, you know, advised him, so to speak, when he was experiencing what he was experiencing back then? 
Well, I would have advised him to persevere with it. You know, I, he, he ended up um, giving up his plastic surgery and became a general practitioner uh, with my mother. And they both had a general practice together. And it was great from the financial point of view. Um, you know, it was a stable career. They didn't have to move around. Um, there was no further career progression or training and exams. But his passion and his his heart was always in plastic surgery. And if, if he could have pursued his passion and, and persevered, he would still have been a plastic surgeon and he would have got a consultant job, I think, somewhere. I think things, things changed, but I, he made a choice with my mother to bring up the young family in a, in a stable place, not having to move around and, and, and uh, take a financial decision, which was not necessarily, uh, which wasn't the, the best decision for his own career progression and for his own um, self-fulfillment. Whereas, you know, I had the luxury of being able to persevere and go on to do what I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up doing what I wanted to do, but there were still bottlenecks and there was a gla glass ceiling for me. So um, uh, after 10 years at um, Anbrooks and Ipswich, I, you know, I, um, I, I very much was the single fe uh, female doing this in a, surrounded by a, um, a group of male consultants who um, in, in the oculoplastic surgery field were not supportive. Uh, it, was, it was a network, it was still the old boy network. And here it wasn't the color that was the issue, it was, it was, it was a gender issue. You were um, too good. You were very good at what you were, you were doing. I mean, you're probably the best there. Perhaps um, there is that, the, and, and I'm sure there is that, that there is um, uh, jealousy, but you know, I, I, I was naive. I was very naive to that. You know, I thought that there is no healthy competition is always good. Um, you, know, you support each other so that you're doing the best for patients. And you get better as well. Yeah, you get better. And I, I suppose I was uh, I was out in the sticks in inverted commas. I'm not in London. In London, you can set up shop next to somebody else, and you'll have a hundred oculoplastic surgeons. And it's it's not. I mean, there's still competition, and there's still still all of that the ego, but it's not the same. So um, yeah, it was probably the nature of where I ended up and that there was only room for one or, or two. And that's what it was felt to be, I think. But uh, anyway, so um, I then um, went through the pandemic. You know, it was, it was uh, as we all were, um, living in, in fear of, of what this horrible disease was going to do to us uh, and our, passing it on to our young families, two doctors as, as parents. My husband uh, was an, is an anaesthetist and uh, he ran the intensive care and the sort of um, and the anaesthetic department in, in Cambridge and the sort of the first uh, first line of, of def defense against the disease in the initial stages and um, so there was this whole fear last I forget when we this all started now is it 2019 2020 yeah it was so surreal you know it's kind of a surreal moment. That first time it was, um, are we both going to survive? That's when we wrote a will. We hadn't written a will before that time. <laughs> we wrote a will. Um, 
are we both going to be able to look after our children does one of us have to give up our work so that we can we can stay at home and uh, so it was it was a difficult time and challenging time for everybody uh, but it was also a, a time to be able to rethink um, career choices um, passions and you know what what to do next and it was it was uh, a time when um, a lot of our clinical work was shut. Um, so I was still doing emergencies. In fact, the juniors were all moved to the COVID ward. So they, they had to deal with the, the worst of it in a way. Um, the consultants were on call 24-7. Uh, um, and um, running the emergency ophthalmology care um, and my skin cancer work was still going on at that time and so that was the only thing that wasn't stopped thankfully um, but uh, everything else was was stopped and also you know with then as you, I'm sure you you went through this as well you know we we knew about um, the transmission from the eyes and with COVID and, and we didn't have the tests and we didn't know whether you know, we were going to put ourselves at risk and um, by operating on patients who hadn't been tested and you know, wearing the full PPE. I remember the, the first week I'd heard about um, COVID from November the year, be year before um, through colleagues in, um, in, in around the world, in China and in you know, other countries, um, that there was something that was coming. Um, and I made sure that I um, wore a mask all the time. And from the very beginning, I decided I was not going to wear the same clothes at work as I was wearing at home. So, you know, I, I started wearing scrubs. And that very first week I was told off by the hospital management for walking around the corridors uh, wearing a mask. The very next week, it was um, uh, the, the guidance in the hospital that everybody should be wearing masks. You know, it was a difficult time for everybody and the people who were making the rules uh, were going by what they had to balance the decisions based on what amount of PPE uh, was present, was available and, and what, what they should be doing. But, um, you know, it, it was a, a life-changing time and um, career-changing moment as well. Uh, and during this time, I was also uh, working on another project. So um, from, from the dry eye point of view, you'll know that actually blepharitis is a, is a condition which um, causes significant amount of dry eyes, and dry eye disease and inflammation of the lids um, and uh, another unmet need that um, I, I felt um, during my, my work was that, uh, you know, um, there are a lot of um, antimicrobials we use for asepsis in surgery. So we use iodine, we use chlorhexidine. Um, I developed an allergy to chlorhexidine during my, my work and training, uh, and, and it's not that uncommon. And I'd seen a lot of people with corneal burns um, due to alcohol, and particularly during the pandemic as well, you know, people were spraying everything everywhere, um, and alcohol burns, and I knew that, you know, one of the unmet needs was that we didn't have an antimicrobial that was completely eye safe. Um, and with my work in the aesthetic industry, I became aware of this um, substance called hypochlorous acid. And hypochlorous acid is something that's been used for over 100 years. So even before iodine started being used in the war, um, hypochlorous acid became uh, 
known about, and it's something that our white blood cells naturally make to destroy pathogens. So it destroys bacteria, viruses, uh, all sorts of things. And um, hypochlorous acid was being used and had been manufactured in other countries in the US and other countries for um, uh, basically improving the purity of water initially. And then it was being used to treat uh, blepharitis. And um, it, it is a, an, an antimicrobial that has no alcohol, that has no cytotoxicity and is safe um, to be used on skin. And I became aware of its use in the aesthetic industry because a lot of my colleagues who were doing injectables with fillers and Botox were using this hypochlorous solution to clean the skin as opposed to using iodine, as opposed to using chlorhexidine. And um, I decided that actually, you know, this, 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 is, um, this is something potentially that could, could be the thing that we're missing in, in ophthalmology in eye care. Um, and so I um, approached the company that, that makes this very high pur purity hypochlorous solution, um, CHT Limited. And I, and I said to them, look, you know, how can we make this safe for the eye? Because the, the pH of the one that you have for the skin is not the eye pH. Can we make something that is the same pH as the eye and the ocular surface? Because all of the products that are available in other countries are made by electrolysis and they're not, they leave debris on the lashes. They're effective at uh, getting rid of viruses and bacteria and you've shown it with your product for the skin. Can we make something for the eyes? And so I worked on that with, with them from 2018 and it happened to be ready at the beginning of the pandemic. So that meant that, in fact, I've got some bottles here. I've got the first prototype. This is the first prototype that, that came out called Purifies. Oh, wow. Uh, um, and uh, I came up with a name. <laughs> and designed the bottle. And this is something that I sprayed in, uh, in my mouth, nose, eyes, face, um, and patients as well. And I ran a clinical study. So this, this was for, for clinical studies. This, was, this, this hadn't not been trialed before it was, it was trialed, but this was for phase one studies on, on friends, family, patients, and anyone else who would be happy to be involved. Um, and in those days, you know, you just want to get rid of all the virus, you know. Exactly. I wanted to get rid of everything. And it was perfect. I mean, touch wood, and I still haven't had COVID. Yeah. Um, and none of my family has either. But um, the, the main thing is that I was using it for my patients um, post-surgery as well. Because one of the things that we were seeing in publications that were coming out during the pandemic is that um, there was an increased incidence of infections post-operatively because people were having to wear masks and blowing bacteria all over their eyes. You know, there was more mask-related acne, but there was also mask-related eye problems. Um, and post-surgery, once the lockdowns were over and surgery was back and cataract surgery and all other surgery was back, then people were wearing masks and then getting infections in their eyes after their surgery. Um, and I didn't have a single post-operative infection uh, wow. with, with this product. So this, all my patients got that and they still get that now. Uh, in fact, the, the, the product has been developed further and it, you know, it's got, now got a blue bar on the bottle. <laughs> and it's just um, been nominated as a finalist for a product innovation of the year 
um, and it's also available through Positive Impact, which is a um, bespoke opticians distribution um, a distributor, and they've also won um, Optician Supplier of the Year as well. So, yeah, I think I'll be that, buying some. I, I think <laughs> I think that would be the, thing, the next thing for preventing dry eye disease in the future. So perhaps we can get it down from eighty percent to much less than that. But um. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I brought that up was because um, I had that as protection. I had um, I yeah. had the knowledge that there was something coming, and this was also there were things brewing that were that were developing in terms of interests. Um, and how do you develop uh, those sort of brewing realizations? Well, I, had I had more time uh, because yes. I was yeah. home. Yeah. A lot of the time, you know, I we had the administrative work of, of um, working from home. I, I brought in, um, I, I was one of the first consultants in the in the region to be doing virtual consultations because with ocular plastics, you can do that much more than you can with ophthalmics um, because you can at least get an idea of eyelid conditions by looking at someone's face. And so I, um, I was at home doing some of the clinics and I, at least able to maintain my service as well as um, spend time giving webinars, presentations, writing papers, doing more research. Um, I, yeah, it sounds a bit nuts, really. I should have just sat at home and done some exercise, which is, would have been a better well, you had more time to be, you know, uh, into your creative mode and, and, and sort of being, yeah, so had, to speak. I had the opportunity to do that and I wasn't commuting um, yeah. in the car quite so much. And, and so it was, there was more time available um, and it was a good time to be able to, to do these things and, and learn more as well. And so, yeah, it was, um, it was an opportunity and that's where I reached sort of crossroads and I could, I, I decided actually at that point I'd reached the glass ceiling with my uh, surgical work and uh, NHS work, and I wasn't really able to provide the best care for my patients um, due to various different limitations. Um, and so I left the NHS fully in February. Um, and uh, February of last well, year, two, 2021, yeah. Uh, 2021 yeah now because we're yeah, just just under a year now so um uh, again losing track um and uh, i was very fortunate that um uh, one of my previous trainees um, jonathan roos who um is also an excellent surgeon also trained at moorfields um decided that he wanted to do the same thing that he wasn't interested in um necessarily um uh, getting to a, a glass ceiling um, and um, we formed this business called Face Restoration, um, and it's a very unique, unique. I, I don't think there is a single plastic surgery team where two consultant surgeons work together. Uh, uh, unique, diverse teams. We have one male, one female, yeah. one brown person, one white person, and we consult and uh, see patients together, operate together, and we publish, we present, you know, and, and it, it, it means that we have really got rid of a lot of the obstacles and barriers um, that were there in, in the NHS. We're doing something that's quite unusual and new and unique, um, but also it's, it's, um, it's a way of giving to patients something that they don't have at the moment and, uh, and losing the ego. And, uh, losing the ego from surgery 
Um, there is a huge amount of ego amongst surgeons and uh, I'm very lucky that uh, I've found somebody who, who doesn't have the ego. Um, and I have lost my own ego as well to a degree. You know, I, I have to accept that 10 years of experience in as a consultant in, in oculoplastics and aesthetics. And I will share that with someone else so that we can provide the best care for our patients. Um, and so I don't have the ego of being the main surgeon. It's, yeah, it's a yeah. team. I mean, it sounds like a yin and yang sort of relationship and, and you know, the balance is there between the, the feminine and the masculine. Um, yeah. and, you know, that, it, that tends to work most times. It does. It attracts patients um, and patients feel listened to. You know, we have the time to listen and do because there's two of us. Um, and there, there, is, there is always still um, uh, the, the sort of gender issue that sometimes um, people will only refer to, to my colleague, male colleague. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, cultures take time for them to develop. And, you know, yeah. we're all at different stages in our cultural development. Um, and, you know, that's the way life is, you know, because we're all at different stages in our journey. But, you know, coming back to the ego, you know, ego creates avatars and sometimes we outgrow our avatars and and we've just got to accept it and realize that there's more to life than just one avatar. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so that that's where I'm at at the moment. And um, I, um, there is no glass ceiling anymore. Um, there you go. There is no ceiling, really. And uh, you know, it, I think this is it's just finding uh, a niche um, and uh, finding a team and uh, of people that you can choose to work with, which we aren't always able to do in the NHS. You know, you 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 get a job and you are working with who you work with. Your personalities may not work together, um, and they, but they may. And if they do, then that's brilliant. Um, but then also you may be doing things which you don't enjoy and you need to have something that drives you to, to the next stage. And I, I certainly did. And, and that was the opportunity for me to make those decisions and things were already being set up. Um, so it wasn't an overnight sort of success. Um, but things were already being set up to allow it to be uh, to, to launch this sort of uh, business, uh, medical business privately without having to take the 10 years to to get going that it would normally take for something like this, I think. Um, well, I mean, you're a natural trailblazer. You know, that's what it's about, really. You know, you, you know, you have this sense of knowing what's going to come around the corner. And, you know, you probably got that from your parents because, you know, they... You know, they did a big step. I mean, same with my parents. I mean, you know, my my father left Iraq and, yeah. and decided to sort of, uh, you know, set shop here, which was a really brave move. Yeah. Um, and I guess that rubs off onto us and and you know to to the next generations, you know, who are who are sort of in touch with us. Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely agree. And uh, you know we are disrupting the market because of that but that that is as you say you know it, it's not as big a step as our parents took uh, those, those yeah massive steps step much bigger yeah. so yeah. Um, well i mean we say that yeah. i mean probably our steps you know because we don't realize it because we're in the middle of everything 
you know, we don't realize how much of a significant effect we're having on other people. Um, but the aftershocks yeah. will be quite profound. Uh, and, you know, we won't, you know, we may not see that physically, but God knows what's going to happen, you know, metaphysically after, you know, we move on. Um, yeah. You know, it's not really a very, uh, you know, logical way of thinking, really. You know, it's sort of non nonsensical way of thinking. <laughs> it's always the way that actually in retrospect that's that's what's going on you know um, a lot of a lot of what I'm doing in medicine now five years ago people would have looked at and I perhaps would have looked at and said oh that's this is this is rubbish you know yeah uh, you know going back to the psychology uh, when 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 I was presenting at an international meeting in Singapore on thyroid eye disease one of the audience, uh, another female doctor from India, stood up and said, you know, I get my patients to do meditation and yoga. Mm -hmm. And the largely male audience just laughed at her. Um, but actually, you know, autoimmune diseases are, are caused by stress. And we know now that actually wellness and men mental health can have a huge impact on our well-being and physical health as well. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you know that saying that it always starts off by them laughing at you. So that's like a really. Yeah, I, I just, you know, <laughs> it's like water to a duck's back, really. You know, you know, I don't bother um, getting upset about these things anymore because, you know, people people are laughing at you. At least they're paying attention to you. So you're doing something right. Yeah. So, and, um, you know, the process of laughing is is so complicated, but we know that it's quite significant, you know, whether it's positive or negative yeah. um, you know um, it's a significant human in you know um affect so to speak yeah and i just laugh with them yeah That's yeah fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's um i mean it's nice to see the amalgamation of psychology and non-materialism with materialism and i think you know that's where the next um you know new frontier of of, 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 of traditional medicine we'll mm -hmm. be looking into um, and maybe even surgery as well and you know this whole you know amalgamating robotics with with art yeah uh, well um, I don't know yet about I mean robotics definitely we've certainly got some of that and and art um, but I think that you know we definitely need to be incorporating a lot of the um, a lot of the metaphysical things and the uh, nonsensical things um, into our, our our practice because they may not be nonsensical. Uh, one of one of the places that I um, uh, work at at the moment is called Lanzerhof at the Arts Club, and they are a, a private uh, wellness facility, and they do a lot of things which five, uh, two, three, four, five years ago we would have laughed about. So like the cryotherapy chamber which increases and improves metabolism, uh, vitamin infusions. There are various different things that actually, you know, it does make a difference. And although the scientific evidence may not be out there yet for some of it, it will be. Um, and we need to be thinking about a holistic approach to our patients and, and whether that's incorporating robotics or laser or other, other approaches to the care of our patients uh, whether that's um 
you know, going to be detrimental to the artistry. I don't think so. I think I think we'll still always have a job. Um, we'll always need to apply the artistic eye, inverted commas, um, to the eye care, for, for, particularly for ocular plastics. You know, it's it's my signature that is on someone's face when I operate uh, on the most important part of their face. And so it has to be artistic, it has to be scars, scarless, and it, um, it has to protect the eye. And so they're all still important things. And whether robots can help with efficiency, um, probably can, but whether they can help with artistry, I'm not sure. So I think it's still still an artistic eye that's needed. I mean, there are uh, lots of um, studies that look at uh, symmetry with pe uh, people's faces, for instance. And I think a robot will create a, a very symmetrical face if it was told to operate on something. But actually, you know, I'm very asymmetrical. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm necessarily that good looking, but I'm very asymmetrical. But if you put two sides of the uh, of um, a split face together, and um, Jonathan, my colleague, has given a presentation splitting David Beckham into two. He also split me into two, but splitting David Beckham into two and put the two sides together. And actually, he's very asymmetrical. And if you put the two sides of David Beckham together um, with to give symmetry he looks very odd you lose that lose that good look and that's the same for a lot of people who are asymmetrical and i don't think necessarily that we want to be aiming for perfection in better commas by a robot yeah. um, i think the human human in us will always look for some characteristic that is slightly different and unusual and that's what's striking and so that's where asymmetry is important yeah, um, yeah, I mean, we've got to relate to people at the end of the day. And, and you know, we know that we're imperfect. So if we see a bit of imperfection, it kind of makes us a bit easier to relate to that person. I think that's true. <laughs> you want to be too perfect. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of I, I think robotics will be important just to sort of cut out the mundane things. And I think, um, you know, human beings are very good at, you know, creating routines very quickly and we get bored with routine so the robots can deal with the routine and i think that'd be good I think um, that's, that's entirely right yes i mean and there are some things that should be automated and that can probably reduce errors and that's where automation and yeah you know we can include the husband and wife in that as well for certain things yeah put it on <laughs> switch <laughs> i'm gonna get in trouble now anyway um but yeah um yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think art is, you know, is where the real, the real deal is, you know, it's sort of um, essentially the real dance of life. And that's where, you know, music and art and creation and fiction and stories and, you know, all of these, um, I mean, you know, we shouldn't really call it human, but, you know, they call it humanities, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that's where. Exactly, yeah. you know the social sciences are and that, that that's why it's really significant because you know because we all have a stake in it um and i think that's where the real you know the the real gem of of, of what it means to be a human being is you know in these areas and if we can amalgamate boring medicine with that it, <laughs> it, it makes all of our lives much more interesting well we we all have hidden talents yeah. Yeah. whatever it is there is always a, a hidden talent I mean think just because you're a, a doctor it doesn't mean that that is the only talent you have and um, and 
we will all have talents in some aspect of humanity. And, you know, it's not really celebrated as as medics. I mean, that, that wasn't really celebrated for me. Um, uh, I mean, I was at Bart's and, and um, you know, I, I just felt the tradition of of traditional Western medicine there rather than any celebration of, of you know, the spiritual and, and the metaphysical, which I was really interested in and the psychological. Mm. But then I couldn't really verbalize it and sort of logically create that within me because I didn't mm. have, I guess, the maturity uh, to understand that. Um, but hey, you know, I, I guess that's life's lessons, isn't it? We've got to experience life to sort of understand life, really. Yeah, and and you found it, and uh, you know it, that's the other thing. It's never too late, yeah. never too late to to find yourself or to find your passions or to to um, incorporate the aspects of your life that you're not entirely sure about how to verbalize. But when you when you are able to verbalize it, it's never too late to do it. And uh, I'm. I um, turned 50 last year and it was doing a start, setting up a startup. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. It's scary. It's like scary stuff. Scary. But, uh, you know, it, there's no yeah, you know, scary in the nice sense. You're not in this, oh my God, it's, you know, existential dread and so on. It's sort of like, yeah, this is, this is like when I was back in just starting medical school sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I have the support network and infrastructure to be able to do this um, and still be able to bring home a salary. And, and it's not, it's, it's, it, you, there are two children in school and you know, there's a house and a mortgage and all of those other things that have to be taken care of. And I'm able to do that, but I, I'm able to take the plunge because there is a support network there. But, but also, you know, I think, it's important for all of us to be able to do something that actually drives us and uh, allows us to fulfill uh, our needs, individual needs, whether that's career or, or family or whatever it is. Um, and I still had that need and, and making that change um, last year was, was the best thing that I've done. And in terms of quality of life even though I'm probably working harder than I've ever worked because you know it's very different when you're running a business you take things for granted when you're in the NHS you don't have to worry about ordering drugs you don't have to worry about um, administration things you don't have to worry about preparing consent forms and all sorts of well, you know all sorts of things there's yeah. so much that we take for granted um, and it's having to suddenly do all of that with familiarity in the clinical side, but absolutely no familiarity in the business side, um, then it's it's scary. But it is something that I was passionate about and I wanted to do, and then and you know very happy I'm doing it now. And so, for me, it's not too late. It wasn't too late, and I don't think you know if anyone else listening in is 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 thinking about making sort of career changes. I don't you know. There's, there's never a good time or a bad time it's it's no. if, if the time is now the time is now so yeah yeah i mean if the drive and the motivation is there then then that you know that's it that's all you need really um well i mean it's been an absolute pleasure and and you know i i, I just realized that you know we've sort of gone on and it's probably gone very quickly <laughs> it has gone very quickly you know it's been an absolute delight to speak with you and you know it's, it's great 
listening to your experiences as well so thank you very much for having that's on. okay i mean i like to finish on this and 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 um you know i i like to ask our guests you know um what would you tell um Rachna, who has sort of experienced what what her father went through and about to start medical school what you know at um, saint mary's you know what, what what would your three top tips be to her or, or what what would you advise her if, if she came and saw you today oh my goodness you put me on the spot haven't you really um and it, I, I actually um gave a similar kind of advice to one of my friend's daughters who is uh, applying for uh, well going to do a levels next to decide what career they want to take and um you know what i said to her is what i would say to myself then as well which is to if to find a career in something that you are passionate about because if you're passionate about it you will not um have any problems in getting up and going to work and enjoying the work and coming home and everything else in your life will benefit from from it so that's the first thing do something that you're passionate about the second thing is that, as I know now, it's never too late to, to change. And so don't worry about making the wrong, wrong decision. You know, we spent a lot of time worrying um, about what is the right choice in medicine? What, is, what should I be doing? I, uh, don't worry about making the wrong choice because you can always change. And the third thing is actually um, probably allowed some time to um to for yourself so we get very caught up with um our work and uh, um the needs of others around us because we are carers we're, we're in a caring profession but sometimes that means that actually we don't allow time for ourselves whether that is actually fulfilling our need in terms of career progression or whatever it is quality of life exercise that kind of thing um, I would say just from then, from that very beginning, always make sure that I allow some time for myself and my own needs, um, and then everything else will also benefit. Absolutely. Total guilt-free, whatever, enjoyment, fun, self-care, whatever it is. <laughs> just enjoy yourself. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you today and 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 um, thank you so much for sharing what you've shared today. And I'm sure it's going to be um, a wonderful inspiration for all the aspiring surgeons out there uh, and, and and people that, that really relate to you and what you've gone through. Um, what's the best way of, of people contacting you? Um, um, Probably through my, uh, so I have my LinkedIn profile, so um, I'll follow you as well. Um, and so do do follow me on LinkedIn, um, as Dr. Rachna Murphy, or on Instagram, Dr. Rachna underscore Murphy. Message me through that, and then I'd be delighted to, to get in touch. Wonderful. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pere. You take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.